Hey guys, it's Theodora, writer, creator, and producer of That Creepy Podcast. But you probably recognize me as the voice of Dorothy Stevens. We're about to jump into episode four, but a few things before we get started. This is the part one finale of season two, but rest assured we'll be back September 30th for an extra special haunt season. In the meantime, don't forget about our website, thatcreepypodcast.com, with links to our merch, playlists inspired by the show, and lots of other stuff. From writing, to casting, to recording, to scoring, to production, our small crew puts in hundreds of hours, and believe me, we appreciate all the support you give, financially or otherwise. And last but not least, thank you. Thank you to the entire cast and crew for making this the best season yet, and thank you to y'all. This story has been three years in the making, and watching you enjoy it has made it all worth it. So, thank you. And without further ado, enjoy the show. All right, Miss Jesselyn, let's get the ball rolling. I've got places to be. Ugh, I hate that. It's Jess, even professionally. Don't be nervous. It'll be fine. I'm not nervous. Then why are you sitting like that? Like what? Like you're stressed. Relax. I'm not stressed. I'm cautious. Which is why I'm still not sure about this. Seems like a conflict of interest. Oh, hush. I've already spoken to my journalism professor, and they said it should be fine, so long as I disclose our relationship. What's this for again? Just the quarterly starlight. That true crime zine my friend publishes? Nothing big, but it's something. So... Obviously. I know who you are, but go ahead and state your name for official purposes. My name is Lawrence Blake McComfrey. And let's start with how you became involved with John Tucker. First things first, I had no business being in Harker. The day I saw John was the closest I've ever come to believing in destiny. I mean, what are the odds a former New Orleans cop would find a deceased victim walking around while on his way to file paperwork? It felt like my past was literally haunting me, or my past failures were mocking me. Why didn't you consider rejoining the force here in Atlanta? Surely they could have just transferred you. You were always good at your job, even if some people didn't approve. Sure, I thought about it, but I was suspicious I had outgrown more than just NOPD. It felt like maybe the choices I had to make didn't fit the system as a whole. Maybe it was time to start over. Taking the job in Harker had been total chance. I'd invested my life in New Orleans and the force there. But when you're unexpectedly pulled off cases for bad reasons, work relationships can get contentious. The very system that had trained me, built me up into the detective that I am, didn't fit me anymore. And that's a problem. So I moved back to Atlanta. Plus there was the added bonus of being close to family again. One of the few welcome changes. An old history professor of mine from Georgia State contacted me about a part-time position at Oakland House. It was a mix of volunteer and paid work, and I had graduated with a degree in history with a minor in criminal justice. So it seemed like a good change of pace. Maybe even a stepping stone into a different career. A way out. You were looking for a way out? Kind of. I wanted to want something else. And how was working at Oakland House? Was it the way out that you wanted? peaceful. Occasionally eerie, but mostly boring. Everyone had pretty strict office hours, 
except Dora, because she's worked there longer than anyone else. Acts like she runs the place, because she basically does. Yeah, she definitely seemed like a character when I spoke to her last week. That's one way to put it. How's she doing? Can you not ask her yourself? I doubt I got a good read of her well-being, considering she... Was stubborn? Knew what I was about to ask, and was never happy about it. Yeah, that's a specialty of hers. So you were bored? Is that why you quit Oakland House? Or was it Dora? Neither. Sure, the slower pace was weird, but doable. Dora and I had learned to stay out of each other's way at that point, too. But when John went missing, the town lost their shit for about two weeks. Everyone thought they would be next, even though we didn't know what had happened at that point. Obviously, I've never lived in a small town, so this level of mass community panic was foreign to me. The disappearance was announced in the newspaper, and every shop on Main Street locked their doors that day. I'll never forget seeing John's picture in the paper. I'd passed him on the street only weeks before that, and I knew it would be bad news if I got involved. I hadn't exactly announced I was in law enforcement and still had a PI license, so I figured keeping my head down would be easy. I hadn't considered someone like Jory would come along. Someone like Jory? Someone vivacious, spirited. Which are synonyms for? Alive. I've never met someone so full of life, but so sure of death. It's off-putting at first. All right. I know I shouldn't ask this, but do you think John's dad actually murdered David? You know I can't answer that. Okay, I get that. But why didn't anyone pursue charges? It's just so frustrating to watch from the outside. The trial itself was cut and dry. Easy. The evidence of corpse abuse was immense, but they chose not to prosecute him for anything else. Why? It was an easy win. Unfortunately, the layering of criminal acts made stuff like David's alleged murder not so cut and dry. The evidence wasn't there for a murder conviction. Through history, people have charged killers with petty crimes when they didn't have enough evidence to win a murder trial in court. Frustrating, sure, but it is what it is. Tucker isn't the first and won't be the last. Fine, fine. I guess our time is up soon. Oh, before you leave, Mom asked me to tell you to text her back about dinner this Sunday. Tell her I'll be there, unless I get called into work. Text her yourself, dude. She wants to hear from you. Understood.
Better hide it then. Time's up. We have company. I'm in Oakland House, standing at the top of the main staircase. I can feel my hand grip the cold wooden handrail. The grandfather clock in the foyer chimes 3 a.m. It's dark, save for the few gas lamps outside leaking warm light through the old window glass. And everything is still, silent, save for the slightest rustle of the white gauzy curtains covering every window. No air passes over my skin. None of the familiar spirits of Oakland House whisper to me. And for the first time, it's lonely. Have I ever felt this alone before? I walk down to the foyer, slowly, still listening for anything familiar. A train passing, a dog barking, the sound of the bar owner, half drunk in the alleyway, locking up for the night. Anything to cut the quiet besides that damn clock. Anything. And that's when I notice not even my footsteps are making sound. No whispers, no footsteps. I check my own breathing, a habit my aunt got me into many years ago, and notice even that's gone mute. So I must be in a liminal space. As I reach the foyer, the tips of my black dress begin to float with the curtains. Still, no breeze brushes my thighs, confirming my suspicion and fear. Even for someone accustomed to hopping the psychological spiritual planes, falling into an unintentional space is not good news. That usual sense of control leaves you, and all that's left is pure instinct. A tricky, dangerous game of chance. I never liked leaving things to chance. The ticking is louder now. Too loud. The only thing I can hear. I try to call out to get the attention of anything around me, but the words die on my tongue. White flickers in my peripheral vision, and for half a second, I'm not sure I even saw anything. But the biggest difference between a dream space and a physical space, it's all in my head, isn't the dismissive statement you think it is. Another white flicker at the top of the steps draws my attention. She materializes before I can blink, all pale shades of white and sickly gray-green trailing down her limbs and across her chest, up into her neck. The edges of her pale silhouette slip in and out of focus, and her face appears sad, reluctant. She looks at me. I look at her. The curtains are still billowing on the phantom breeze when she moves down a step closer. And I notice the thin trickle of blood leaking from the inner corner of her right eye. It shakes me from my unintentional hypnotic state. I've never seen her, never been here with her before. So I know. She takes a seat at the top of the landing, wilting like a flower against the railing, clinging to it, the veins in her hands bulging. You can't help her this time, she says, and her voice reaches me like a soft whistle from the dark corners. The words wake me from my dreamland stupor. I realize she doesn't seem after me specifically. Still, I can't stay here. I may not have been put here intentionally, but this is still Oakland House. My Oakland House. And it is 3 a.m. after all. I head for the grandfather clock after frankly losing my patience and open its glass. I yank the minute hand from the face and turn back to the spirit, the spade end now pointed at my own jugular. 
The metal bit into my palm, prickling the skin with all the emotion I wasn't letting show on my face. I refused to stay here, even if dying was my only way out. Of course, I didn't prefer that method of exit and had mostly hoped to shock the spirit into letting me go. But she only wilted further into the landing, even averting her eyes. She didn't want to be here any more than I did and maybe even had less choice in the matter. Cause she was already dead, very dead. But I wasn't very dead yet and I was getting the hell out of here. It's 4 a.m. when I wake up. I don't jump awake like is typical when dying in a dream. I float to the surface of my consciousness slowly, almost struggling. My eyes haven't even fully focused when I rip the black velvet comforter off my body and begin cleansing. I open every window in my tiny bungalow before clicking on the speaker to calm my nerves. I watch the mantle, decorated with various found photos of family members and ancestors and light the candles there. I was already starting to doubt myself. What had I dreamed? It was just a nightmare, right? Surely it hadn't felt that real. I check my right palm. Nothing. No marks. No broken skin. I touch the skin around my jugular vein a second time, even though I knew nothing would be found there. Not even a nail mark from my own hand. Maybe I had imagined it. What? I'm kind of in the middle of something. You're busy at 4 a.m.? Yes. Very. Well, murder isn't always convenient. I nearly dropped the bundle of smoldering herbs I was wielding like a weapon. Why else would I be calling at this time? Look, you'll have to forgive me if I'm a little distracted right now. Dying isn't exactly something I enjoy experiencing. Um, is everything all right over there? We'll see. Look, just text me the address. I can be there in 45 if it's inside the perimeter. Negative. You're not needed on the scene. I had planned to leave a voicemail update so we could meet later today or tomorrow. Excuse me? Uh, I have to be there. It's part of the agreement. Actually, it's not. I've been told this one is pretty bad, and I can tell you're barely comfortable seeing the photographs. Anger froze me in the center of my living room. And embarrassment. Apparently, my attempts at hiding my fear hadn't been very effective. I felt the heat rush to my face. Just because I have to see this stuff doesn't mean anyone else should. You're not a failure for having empathy and human emotions. People like me are just fucked up. I still had no response. There was a layer of vulnerability in Lawrence's words I wasn't used to. And he was waiting. For what? For a fight? For me to reassure him it was okay? That he hadn't offended me? I was still grappling for the right words when something fell in the attic above me, where I knew John and Jory had been when I'd fallen asleep yesterday. Shit, that sounded big. What was that? Nothing. I, I don't know. Look, Lawrence, I'm at Oakland House the rest of the week. Drop by the first chance you get. Bring lots of pictures. I, I really have to go. Quick, panicked footsteps sounded above my head before disappearing. It sounds wild over there. Are you sure everything's okay? A knock at the front door sent me jumping out of my skin. My nerves were frayed beyond recognition at this point. This morning was already prematurely aging me. I could feel it. I unlatched the door, opening it wide, and found Jory, wide-eyed. 
She'd gone down the back steps, and I only knew from the years we'd spent together, wasn't awake. Shit! She's here. I have to leave. I have to go. Dora, what the fuck is going on over there? You handle the dead guy, I'll handle this. Bye, Lawrence. Now I really had lost patience, because I hadn't imagined anything. The dream had been terrifying, and so was this. I gripped her face in my hands and spoke clearly, trying to reach any part of her that would listen. Jory, listen to me. You're about to be thrown in the shower, and it won't be fun, and you will just have to forgive me again. The robe door I let me borrow was warm, but the gaudy faux fur clung to my wet hair and clammy skin uncomfortably. I laid out ungracefully on Dora's velvet green couch just after 5 a.m., praying to whatever would listen that I could go back to sleep. But I knew better than that. My entire side was tender from hitting the nightstand as I'd fallen out of bed. I wouldn't be getting comfortable for weeks, and no way would I be sleeping with Dora glaring at me like that. She wouldn't be letting me out of her sight for the remainder of the day. But. Physical injuries were nothing compared to the adrenaline still pumping through my body at a wild pace. Head back, eyes closed, I repeated the familiar steps to faking my calm and hoped the real thing would follow. My biggest worry about moving home had come true, and if I knew anything about Dora's spiritual habits, it hadn't just affected me. I'll admit, the dim lighting Dora kept like a religion did help a bit. Should I leave? Don't you dare, John. Yes, ma'am. Dora pinned John to his place on the antique ottoman with a hard look. I honestly felt sorry for the guy, sitting there with his hair sticking up, glasses askew. He was still in his plaid pajama pants, having barely had time to throw on one of his sailor sweaters before coming to help Dora, with me. One moment, I was in Pastor Shaw's study, the usual course of events unfolding. It was scary, but manageable. He had just lunged for my wrists when I saw her behind him half-formed flicker of white fabric, translucent skin, and poisoned veins. She'd been watching. She'd been sad. For me. Then, right before I would have been thrown back, everything had gone black, and I'd woken up shivering under my drenched t-shirt. Dora broke the silence first. Why didn't you tell me your nightmares had gotten so bad again? Well, we weren't exactly on speaking terms until recently, and what could you have possibly done to help anyways? We talked about this, Jory. You have to trust me sometimes. I might have had something. Dora looked both annoyed and exhausted as she gestured to the eclectic living room filled with rocks and jars filled with unidentifiable herbs before throwing herself back into the gaudy armchair. People often mistook Dora's intensity for anger, but I found it comforting. Dora was rarely angry at people directly. No, her anger was directed at whatever was causing the problems. A trauma, or hurt, or even a nightmare. Here's what's going to happen, because we're out of options at this point. You're not going anywhere. Where would I be going? Beats me. But asleep you wanted to leave, and I'm speaking to both of you right now. You're not leaving, and we're going to talk until we're on the same page again. Now tell me, Jory. Who is she? I consider myself a resilient person, but today had been brutal. 
Kelly had been right. The newest killing had been messy, both in terms of execution and the distribution of gore. I arrived at the high-rise downtown apartment a little after 5.30 a.m. Late, because I had no choice but to shower and patch myself up. I hadn't bothered with my usual button-down, too tired for the usual uniform. They were lucky I'd even shown up. I had briefly considered after Dora had hung up on me, telling Kelly to take this one and brief me later, and had quickly decided that was crazy. Dora and Jory could handle themselves just fine. The setup was almost identical to last time, except the body had been fully clothed, save for a blazer thrown sloppily over the foot of the bed, and a rip from the shirt neck to the bottom seam, revealing the injuries to his torso. My stomach had turned over itself every time I moved my arm and felt the cut on my shoulder, but I held it together well enough. Until we finally received the toxicology reports later that day. Finally, a single common thread. GHB and alcohol had been found in each of the victim's system. In other words, they had been roofied with a psychoactive drug. I would get the toxicology report for the most recent victim in a few days, but it seemed safe to assume this connected all the victims. Despite the break in the case, my stomach twisted again, and it didn't stop until I left the scene later that night. This wasn't good news for me. I shot Dora a text on my way home explaining I'd been at the scene all day, and would meet her at the Oakland house tomorrow to fill her in. I wasted no time dropping my belongings and checking over my apartment before dragging my record player into the small bathroom, and locking the door behind me. And I told myself for the thousandth time that day that I wasn't being paranoid. Or crazy. Just cautious. And practical. I spent the next two hours laying in the dry tub, doors and windows locked tight, doing nothing. Just smoking, listening carefully, and waiting. The hours ticked by, but I didn't let myself doubt what I already knew. If I had learned anything, it's the human brain just can't wrap itself around some things. Some things you just have to accept. Sorry it took me so long to get back to you. I had to take care of something. Cohen. Miss me? Yes, and I was hoping to keep it that way. Is that your attempt to hurt my feelings? Speaking of hurting people, how's that shoulder doing? Fine. Some moral code you got there. You owed me. Think of it as payback for never coming home. Let me put this in a way I know you can understand. My future there had one destination, and I have no interest in dying in New Orleans. You can keep it. Yeah, you'd rather die in Atlanta, right? Cohen's ability to see through people was legendary, and it's what made her good at her job. But she'd always seemed to get a sick thrill out of finding a weak point. Once, I thought it was her way of showing that she cared by making your most obvious vulnerabilities known and revealing the cracks in your armor. I left New Orleans once I realized that wasn't the case. I'm actually here to find someone and take them back with me. And, both convenient for me and unfortunate for you, I think she may be connected to some unlucky current events. Griffin says hi, by the way. I still didn't answer. Just put my cigarette out on the side of the tub. My entire head felt heavy and it was an effort to not hang up the phone. Pretend I just hadn't heard what she said. I could just hang up. I should just hang up. Actually, 
I shouldn't have been put in this position in the first place, but it was too late. History was already repeating itself, so I might as well jump in. Lawrence. I'm still here. We were screwed. One of the victim's families brought on an expert, and she's involved in the other cases now, too. She's not a total idiot, Cohen. You need to be careful. Are you sure it's one of yours? Mine feels like a strong word, but most likely. You're crazy if you think I'm saying anything else over the phone. Your concern for my well-being is a nice change, though. You're a master of riddles. I'm sure we could figure something out. No chance. Sorry, babe. I'll be out of your hair soon, but I figured it might be rude to take your criminal without warning. Especially considering what happened last time. Wouldn't want you running again. Wait, when are you leaving Atlanta? Soon, right after I find who I'm looking for. Thankfully, she's been sloppy, so hopefully I'll be gone in a few days. I'll be out of your hair after that. This was it. The only chance I had to salvage this. Everything. I had been hoping it was a copycat, operating on that assumption. And it turns out Griffin had been right to warn me. Working off of assumptions had been an act of faith, of which I had a terrible track record. Well, wait. Maybe we can work something out. I could feel her surprise. Why the sudden change of heart? Last time I suggested working together, you called me a backstabbing waste of energy. And destroyer of worlds were the exact words to Griffin, I believe. I cringed. She was right. And Griffin still couldn't keep his mouth shut. I had my reasons. You're in my city now, so I say it's only fair you go through me first. <sighs> fair. Fine. I can't guarantee anything, though. Oh, and there's no need to lock yourself away in the bathroom, or closet, or wherever you are. We're even now. Sleep tight. Don't let the bed bugs bite. Dora looked like she would be sick, and I probably wouldn't be far behind her. Various depictions of gore passed, one after the other, and I was struck with how unrealistic movies presented this stuff. Blood wasn't one color, it was a spectrum of viscous red and brown, most likely determined by the volume accumulated in an area and the time it was exposed to oxygen. At least, that was my best educated guess. We congregated at the front desk while Lawrence and I caught up quickly, and Dora clicked through the laptop Lawrence had set up. Oakland House was only open to staff today, so openly flipping through human misery wasn't the issue I thought it'd be. Well, I got the toxicology report back. And? Date rape drug. This guy too? We won't know for a few more days. You know how the Atlanta Medical Examiner's office is. Apparently Dora did know shaking her head silently, exasperated. Lawrence shot me a questioning look as I yawned for a fourth time. I didn't have the energy to explain that Jory had slept in two-hour shifts all night to avoid falling into REM sleep, and hadn't exactly been quiet about it. I shook my head, indicating he should let it go for now. He was one to judge. We all looked like hell this morning. So why isn't the gash in his chest a bigger concern for y'all? Dora flipped to a different folder, 
and a new set of images popped up of what I guessed was a previous victim. I mean, none of these other guys were stabbed in the chest. They've got those cuts like him, sure, but most of the blood was drained through a cut in the jugular vein, right? Whether it was collected correctly or not seems to be a toss-up. Collected? Lawrence crossed his arms over his chest, wincing, and it was my turn to throw him a look and have him dismiss it. Well, yeah. That's obvious from the first few victims. Why do you think we saw Charlie? I mean, where else would the blood have gone? Seems like a lot of effort to just write with it and throw the rest down the drain. I assume they still collected from the last two victims, but obviously didn't take as much for whatever reason. They probably didn't think it was that weird, since this guy died before he was stabbed. Maybe they just didn't think it was that important. See the splotches on the arms? It looks like he was killed on his front, left there for an hour or so, then flipped over and cut in two. Lawrence raised his eyebrows in pleasant surprise with almost a hint of pride. And I couldn't help the smug satisfaction that slipped over my face. Any chance to prove I wasn't entirely useless was one I liked to take. Dora flipped back to the most recent case file and continued flipping through the photos, stopping at any close-up of the rune painted over the headboard. Her concentration was only broken by an occasional quick glance to the top of the steps before quickly shaking her head and looking at the screen once again. Okay, so someone is clearly drugging these men, taking them back to their apartments, and killing them. Seems pretty basic. Men aren't typically taught to watch their drinks and aren't used to taking extra steps to protect themselves, so they're probably pretty easy targets. For the thousandth time that day, I noticed a blasé attitude toward death. If hell was a place, we all had one-way tickets. I don't know, Lawrence. This seems pretty straightforward to me, but if you are totally opposed to my last lead still, then I'll start asking around about the runes again. See if anything else comes up. Actually, I'm meeting with a contact later today about a lead, so we may not need you much longer. <sighs> fine, fine. Whatever the families want, I guess. This doesn't mean you've won the bet, though. Not yet. Lawrence looked at Dora like she'd been replaced by a changeling. Not gonna lie, I expected more of a fight. It's honestly fine. I've got my hands full with jewelry right now anyway. You and Jory are speaking again. Oh boy, better warn the sheriff's office. Dora just rolled her eyes and kept scrolling, starting the carousel of pictures from the beginning. But she didn't pay the same amount of attention passing through each image a second time, even as her eyes darted to the front entrance and back to the staircase. Lawrence wandered into Dora's office, giving Dora more privacy and time to have one last look. She snuck a look in Lawrence's direction before closing the laptop with a snap and walking into the foyer. It struck me, not for the first time, how strange it must be to trust someone with your physical life, but not your vulnerability. I followed. We hadn't spoken much about the nightmares or the realization someone might be wishing harm on Jory or anyone else in the house. No one had gone back to sleep after that night, after Jory told us of her worst reoccurring dreams in detail. Dora had me assist her the rest of the day with cleansing the house and ended with her digging up her front garden like a mad woman. She kept saying how there had to be something buried somewhere that if someone was messing with the minds of everyone in the house, there had to be something physical, but there was no note left like last time, so maybe this wasn't just a scare tactic. Dora stopped at the foot of the large staircase in the foyer, staring at the landing with a glazed-over look. I watched as she turned to the door, and then to the grandfather clock, and 
for the first time, I noted the silence. None of the familiar ticking lulling my brain into a numbing rhythm. Dora reached up, opened the face, and touched the base of the missing clock hand. Dora and I both jumped out of our skin as the front door flew open, almost hitting us in the process. And Jory appeared, with a full drink carrier from Bean and Brew and a surprisingly pleasant look on her face, despite the deepening bags under her eyes. Sure, her hair was a rat's nest, but her eyes were clear, and she was smiling despite it all. Hello, hello, I've brought the things to realign our chakras. Jory stopped. Her smile faltered as she saw the melancholy look on Dora's face and dropped completely when she spotted Lawrence walking out of the office. I had forgotten they hadn't seen each other for months. I couldn't remember the last time she'd mentioned seeing him, but something told me it wasn't since moving out of Harker. I'd never seen them as friends, but something felt strained as she opened and closed her mouth, clearly wondering why she hadn't been given a warning or an invite. Lawrence didn't do anything and just looked down at his phone. Jory looked to Dora for answers. Do you want me to go grab another latte? Not necessary. I've got to bounce or risk missing my meeting tonight. Let's follow up with that case later, Dora. And with that, he slipped his phone back in his pocket, shrugged past Dora, and slipped out the door. I felt everyone left in the room grab for anything to say. Because whether purposeful or not, after all these months, we had gotten friendly words and Jory hadn't gotten more than a passing glance. It was 9.15 p.m. when I knocked on the front door. It took no time at all for him to answer, as if he'd been waiting for me, or someone. His shirt sleeves were in different stages of being rolled, a nervous tick I'd seen him do a handful of times. And I noticed a small dark patch leaking through the shoulder of his Henley. His face fell as he realized he was at the door. My hand flew up, signaling for him to pause. Listen, I couldn't let him speak before I had a chance to explain myself. And by golly, if I wasn't gonna touch on every point I'd practice on the car ride over. Look, I know you're probably really mad about Everything, the trial, my immaturity through all of it, and I know there's literally nothing I can do to give you back those months of your life, but I really thought about it, and I wanted to at least thank you for your help. In person. I owe you a lot, and I totally understand if you never, ever want to see me again, but should you decide I'm not the worst person, I promise I won't pull you into any more of my messes, and you have my full permission to never, ever help me again. Lawrence looked over his shoulder before slipping out of the apartment door and closing it behind him. He looked at me with a seriousness that demanded every ounce of my attention. His arms were crossed over his chest in a commanding way, and I stood up straighter, already bracing myself for the inevitable, cutting response. But it wasn't cutting at all. It was soft and concerned, and maybe even a little scared. Listen to me very carefully, Jory. Get back in your car, go back to Harker, and don't make any stops. Go be with John or Dora, get some sleep, I don't care. Just don't be alone. Get out of here. For your own good. Lawrence, you have every right to hate me. I don't hate you. And that's why I can't let you see Cohen. Cohen? 
Lawrence turned to open the door without another word. Done speaking. I'll see you another time, Jory. Sleep tight. The door clicked shut. I heard the deadbolt slide into place. And that was it. But the image wouldn't leave my head the whole way home. That of Lawrence. Eyes dead. Standing there with rumpled clothing and a bleeding shoulder. Acting as if everything was normal. But if Lawrence was scared, I knew nothing was normal. This concludes part one of season two. The journey will continue September 30th, 2021. That Creepy Podcast was written and produced by me, Theodora. Special thanks to voice actors, Joseph Teagle, Katie Collier, Nathaniel Curtis, Emily Black, and Jessica Nova. Opening theme by Theodora and Seth Johnson. Music by Zach Tucker. Audio production and additional scoring by Seth Johnson. We'll see you September 30th. Thanks for listening.